Hello and welcome to Baka Banter, a podcast about all things anime and otaku culture. My name is Ravi and I'm joined by the lad who would leap at the chance to have his own transformation sequence, Yanatan. Do you want to say hi, Yanni? I mean, given the topic of today's podcast, yes. Yes, yes, I would. <laughs> um, there are a few things I want to talk about at the top of the show. One, I think we have to mention there's that huge MAPPA 10th anniversary event and the entire internet collectively creamed itself talking about the <laughs> Chainsaw Man trailer that, that just launched. And mm-hmm. I mean, that was really cool to see. It looks amazing. And all the rest of the stuff they announced also looked amazing. There was an Attack on Titan new key visual. There mm-hmm. are a few other new projects that they announced that also look really good, including a fall anime. So everything looks great. I just really hope that, I mean, we know what the conditions at MAPPA are like. So I, I really hope that we get some change eventually there. But given the anime content, it, it, it is pretty cool to see. Yeah, I guess this is really the first year where I'm actually kind of in tune with the anime news. And this is the first time where I've seen it, like the entire community just blew up. My entire Twitter feed is just straight images of Chainsaw Man. Screenshots from the trailer. Yeah, yeah uh, I don't know the girl's name, like Makima or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, But every image is just her eyes. And I'm just like, okay, I haven't read the manga, but it seems like a lot of people have and a lot of people enjoyed it. It's just blown up everything I'm I'm watching right now. Yeah, same here. And then... The other thing that I wanted to mention uh, at the top of the show is that I, I was just on vacation, so it's the first time we're, we're recording in a while, and I was actually camping a lot of the nights that, that we were on this trip, and I always download something to watch uh, while I'm on these these sort of trips. And so I downloaded K-On! because I was like, we're going to make a Kirani episode eventually, so got to get through a little bit of K-On! And... Oh, that's the reason you downloaded K-On. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly. because it was K-On. No, okay. well, give me a second. And in my head, I uh, was not previously a fan of the soul, you know, cute girls doing cute things subgenre. I thought it was just, okay, you know, I like your camp, but I really like hiking and camping. So it feels like that show was made just for me. And now that I'm watching like the cute girls doing cute things show... And I really, really like it. <laughs> I think I just have to admit that I'm a fucking fan. I don't know what else to say. Yeah, hey, I'm proud of you, man. You, you finally realized it. So uh, it's good. It is what it is. Shows about nothing with cute anime girls having a good time together is apparently something that I like. So here we are. I will tell our listeners that uh, right after you got back, we all decided to have dinner together. So I you know, went over to your place, and at the end of the day, we were like, all right, let's just throw on an anime episode. What should we watch? Of course, Yanni, first one in the <laughs> chat. Oh, we got to watch Eurocamp right now. <laughs> to be fair, to be completely fair, we had some people there that don't normally watch anime, and they specifically said, quote, I like shows where nothing happens, where not that much happens. And I was like, do I have the show for you? And you're like, all right, season three, Attack on Titan. Let's <laughs> yeah, go. Let's go. Exactly. <laughs> so as you just said, in a strange reversal of fortune, we've actually decided this week to do a deep dive into one of your favorite works, Madoka Magica. Madoka redefined not only the magical girl genre, but also established itself as one of the most provocative examples of a genre deconstruction in anime. So to contextualize Madoka, we're going to discuss the magical girl genre, explain how the show was created, and talk through Madoka's major plot twists. So let's get into it. (laughs) 
Alright Yanni, so whereas our isekai episode was basically me monologuing for about two hours, I feel like our roles have really swapped this time. They have a little bit since Magical Girls is more my wheelhouse, whereas isekai is more your wheelhouse, but... <laughs> I, I Since we're talking about a specific show, I did do a little bit of background research into where Madoka sort of fits into the magical girl genre. So we'll talk a little bit through that just to sort of set the stage. But I actually wanted to preface this by saying it's not going to be like our Isekai episode because it's a fairly brief introduction just to sort of give an idea and a basis for discussion. And I'm, I'm not actually going to spend time doing a deep dive on the whole you genre. You say that now. And this morning when I looked at the skeleton for the, the show notes, I was like, okay, there's there's a good amount, but not too much. I came back three hours later and there's five and a half pages of just Madoka content. Okay. <laughs> Look, when you said this was one of my favorite shows, you were not kidding. It is one of my favorite shows. I have a lot to say about it. And also reading through the wiki and, and sort of refamiliarizing myself with the plot was a very good exercise and reminded me of so many things that I that I want to talk about. And you actually just watched Madoka recently for this podcast. So it'll be interesting to hear your perspective on it as someone who is watching it pretty new. Yeah, it's fresh in my mind. We did have a few tame discussions about <laughs> I Madoka in the I don't chat. Know. Were they tame? Were they tame? <laughs> <laughs> um, but for the listeners, at least, why don't we actually start by talking about what the magical girl genre is and how does Madoka really fit into that? Yeah. So to sort of set the stage, magical girl shows typically center around younger female protagonists who have magical powers, ex exactly as you'd expect. Most people demarcate the beginning of the magical girl genre as starting in 1966 with toy animation Sally the Witch which was marketed towards a very young audience. So that's sort of a trademark of early, especially early and sort of classical magical girl shows is that they're marketed towards younger females. And actually the original term for the genre was magico, meaning little witch, because of all a series of shows produced by Toei Animation along with, with Sally the Witch. So this one studio was basically creating a bunch of very similar shows uh, until the genre was sort of renamed as the magical girl genre and stopped focusing on just tiny witches, which I guess is good for everyone. <laughs> everyone has surely heard of, of Sailor Moon and, and Sailor Moon introduced the idea of just a normal girl transforming into a magical girl and then fighting against evil. And had mostly what you'd expect from from sort of classical magic girl shows where these girls transform and then they wave their wands, some magic comes out, and that that's sort of the mechanism for which they fight enemies. Sailor Moon really marked the transition into, okay, actual transformations and actual magical girls. We're going to have a discussion about transformation sequences when we talk about rebellion. I, I don't know if that's a discussion that's mostly <laughs> you just fucking creaming yourself to that sequence. So. All right, we've mentioned creaming twice already in this podcast. I think we're, we're banning that word from the rest of the show. <laughs> but yeah, you really see that transition from, okay, little witches to, okay, now we're, we have magical girls and, and they're actually transforming. After that, we start to get some of the Precure series, which were still marketed for children and, and towards younger audiences and especially towards females, but introduced sort of a genre shift. So now the, the main change was that the girls were actually fighting enemies physically and for lack of a better term, beating them up and the shows would focus on action rather than just a girly transformation sequence, a wave of the wand and the enemies are gone. Precure and some of the entries in Precure, which is actually still going on today, uh, really started to be more action heavy as we might think of some more modern shows. 
This is interesting because some of the elements you're talking about here, I thought were elements that Magical Girl, the genre itself, had always had. Like the transformation sequence, I thought was one of the defining characteristics of the genre. I didn't realize that it was something that actually came out in the 90s with Sailor Moon. Yeah, I mean, it totally is a staple of the Magical Girl genre, and Sailor Moon is probably the Magical Girl show that that most people have heard of, and so it makes sense that you'd associate it with that. And when we talk about how Madoka deconstructs the Magical Girl genre, it does riff on on some of these ideas, and, and mm-hmm. that's very intentional. I will talk about why that's intentional. But yeah, it, it actually, the, the origins of the genre actually predate even that, those sort of staples that that you immediately think about. So when Madoka came along, it was a complete subversion of of the genre in, in 2011. It was an anime original, single core series marketed towards a broader audience with darker elements, complex themes, and a completely unique art style and character designs. And uh, it's important to sort of demarcate those from the previous shows I've been talking about. I specifically said they were marketed towards younger audiences and specifically towards female audiences. That no longer became the case with with Madoka and with other shows. So something like, which you're going to hate that I'm mentioning, but something like Prisma Ilia, which <laughs> I really like, but is obviously problematic for many reasons, including the lolly lewdness. Something you're like just going to throw that in there and just I'm like... just going to throw it in there and not expand on it at all. I actually do think there are a lot of cool things about Prisma Ilia, but you know, eh, it's not for everyone. But something like that show has sort of continued the trend of marketing a magical girl show to a more mature audience and arguably a male audience because it really is just a fate spinoff. That's sort of, I think, how we can couch Madoka within the very, very brief history of, of magical girl shows. I told you this wasn't going to be very long. Well, while we're on this kind of broad scope, how do you think the trajectory of magical girls has actually changed over this time? It seems like the genre and the number of shows coming out in the 90s, earlier, around the early 2000s, was a lot greater than the number now. Um, do you think it's waned, or, or is this something, a change that you see is going to be um, moving in a specific direction now that we're coming up on new shows coming out? I do think it's waned. There's still some Magical Girl content coming out. Prisma Ilia is, is still airing. There's some Madoka the new spinoffs, Madoka movie, the new Madoka example. movie. So, mm-hmm. so there are still elements of, of the Magical Girl genre that we see. We also have to keep in mind, I, I forgot to mention this just now, but I did say Madoka was a single core series and a lot of these other, you know, earlier 90s Magical Girl shows like Sailor Moon were franchises that aired for a long time, maybe aired weekly and had a ton of marketing uh, around them in that sort of subspace. Precure, for example, is still ongoing. You know, mm-hmm. we don't we, we don't really think about it in like the modern anime space, but there is a Precure airing now. You, you can go watch it if you would like, <laughs> you know, and so. There are still hints of of the Magical Girl genre, but I do think it's curious that you mentioned the trajectory because the modern anime fan watches Madoka because it's a classic. And it's very good. You can enjoy it with no other context. But if you're if you're maybe a younger anime fan or who hasn't really spent time look maybe didn't watch Sailor Moon growing up, hasn't watched a precure, you know, hasn't thought about Magical Girls as as a genre ever, it is pretty interesting that you become familiar with the deconstruction of the genre without knowing what it actually is deconstructing mm-hmm. in the first place. And I think the elements are still clear if you really think about it. And it, it does what a typical deconstruction does, what you would expect that it would do, make it darker, introduce more complex characters and motivations and, and all these kind of things. But I do think it's interesting that it has sort of become a, a staple, like, you must watch this if you are a new anime fan. But people often lack the knowledge to really compare it with what it's it's deconstructing. I think that's definitely true of me. I remember as I was going through and watching it, I was 
Not as surprised as I think I should have been at some major plot twists. And I mentioned these to you and, and you'd have to remind me like, okay, you know, if, if you were aware at that time of the entire history of Magical Girls and now you saw this event happening, this is completely out of character for the genre. So, you know, we will talk about those twists and we will talk about what the actual deconstruction was. Let's talk about how the series was made. What made it unique? How did it come off as this anime original and how did it come to be the product that it is? Yeah, so this this is research I specifically did for, for this podcast. And I think made me I mean, I literally messaged you while I was doing this research. And I was like, holy shit, I think Madoka is more of a masterpiece than <laughs> I ever thought it was while like reading about its production and, and how it was made. And let me elaborate a little bit on that. So the making of Madoka. So Madoka is produced by by Shaft. And while working on Bakemonogatari, which of course I, I'm just tossing it in there because I fucking love Monogatari. Every time, every um, single time. <laughs> so while working on Monogatari, Bakemonogatari specifically, and Hidamari sketch on their show, uh, Shimbo asked if he could work on a Magical Girl series. And he was told to create an original by Aniplex so that he could have more creative freedom. And they sort of set this goal of creating a Magical Girl series that was going to be accessible to the quote-unquote general anime fan. I think even that like first piece is already like pretty amazing. Shimbo is like very well known. He has a super unique size. He's a great director. But it's not often now that you get anime originals. And mm -hmm. the fact that the production team is just saying, yeah, don't adapt anything actually just have full creative license to create whatever you want for the show is already really unique i mean i think that's why people were so excited about something like wonder egg priority recently because we just don't see this anymore we get so many adaptations and so many advertisements for manga and light novels and getting something completely unique that no one has ever seen before in any way is just doesn't happen that often and so that already stood out to me yeah that's interesting i mean we we do know it is for good reason that the anime industry doesn't just make anime originals. Again, one of the goals is to increase the revenue they make from the manga, from all of the other accoutrement of the anime for the figures, whatever, the DVDs. Good vocab word, damn. <laughs> what do you want from me out here, man? <laughs> I did my dictionary research too for this episode. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think there are reasons that it isn't as common that we have these anime originals. But I will say that I'm looking forward to a lot more after after watching this, after watching Wonder Egg, um, which I still have to do, but you have been raving about again. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Don't don't look at Crunchyroll originals, but uh, yeah, no, we could pass those. <laughs> okay, so there are a lot of high profile names attached to, to Madoka. Shimbo is one of them. The other big name that that is attached to it is Gen Urobuchi, who was asked to work as the scriptwriter. Ume Aoki was the character designer. He's also relatively well known. But what I found fascinating is that there's minimal involvement across the entire production from the actual production team. They were pretty hands off with it, which I think is unique. A, a lot of times in, in sort of modern anime, we talk about how demanding the production schedules can be, how much influence they have over the creativity of the show itself and asking for very specific things. This, from what I've read, was pretty minimalist. And Shimbo asked Gen Urobuchi specifically to make the series contain and I quote, copious amounts of blood and violence with many of the Magical Girls dying throughout the show since these were unusual elements for the genre. So what else is really interesting is that this is basically par for the course for Urobuchi. If, if you know him, he wrote Psychopaths. He wrote Fate Zero, the prequel to Fate Stay Night. So his nickname is literally the Urobutcher. Like we know he likes to write dark, depressing shit with a lot of blood. 
But what I found hilarious is that Shimbo supposedly did not know the full extent of Urobuchi's past writing when he asked him to do the script for Madoka, which is like, how? <laughs> like, how? Like, why did you ask him if you didn't know that? Yeah. So that, that, was, that was surprising to me. But one other objective they had is to take sort of all of these elements and, and this, you know, violence and death and contrast that with how the anime was marketed. And so it was very purposeful to make all of the marketing, all, all of the visuals, all of the materials for Madoka look like the anime was going to be a regular Magic Girl show because they didn't want people to know that it was going to be dark and what the twists were going to be. So some examples of this, the if you'll notice, the logo uses this is like a nerdy graphic design thing, but the, the title logo uses like very round fonts to appear super harmless. And that's like all done on purpose. Urobuchi even went to the extent of engaging with fans on Twitter and persuading them that the plot of the series was completely innocuous, which yeah. is just like, what a fucking troll. <laughs> like, can you imagine the, the fucking writer of a show who has this reputation just being like, I promise that this one is not going to be like that. I mean, that's actually pretty top tier. It's interesting that you mentioned this because we have talked previously about how other shows have done this in the modern day, like Zombieland We talked Saga, about Zombieland. This reminded me of Zombieland yeah. Saga. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And this extends to like the opening theme as well. So Clarice is the duo that does the opening theme. And it's like a very magical girl-esque opening. It's like exactly mm -hmm. the music and the visuals you would expect for like a call magical girl show. And it shows none of like the complex themes and the darkness that that's under the surface. Mm hmm Okay, so I talked a lot about uh, how the production team wasn't heavily involved, and Urobuchi did indeed have complete autonomy over the plot. And so he purposely studied traditional aspects of the magic or girl genre and picked apart things that were troubling or things that he found were usually overlooked in these shows and made some really, really controversial decisions based off of those. So if you're listening to this and you haven't watched Madoka, like, leave I don't, I, don't know, like, I, don't, I don't know why you're here but spoilers because i've got to start spoiling twists from the show the most controversial decision probably was mommy's death in episode three and the production team once they heard about this asked him to reconsider it multiple <laughs> times and because they were like mommy is such a great character she's going to be so liked like reconsider this when shimbo learned about sayaka's fate and her whole arc, he also asked <laughs> Urobuchi to change her fate and thought that he could keep her in the story in some mm -hmm. ways. And Urobuchi basically said, fuck you to, <laughs> to all of these people, completely declined and said they were central to the show's plot, even if those decisions might make the show less popular with audiences who really connected to those characters. Don't read the show notes right now, Ravi, because I, he, I'm not. he cited specific characters that sort of became immortal because of their deaths. And he sort of envisions some of the characters in this show taking the same route and that killing off characters can sometimes be really powerful. He gives two examples in this quote, but one is a mega spoiler for JoJo's for you, so I kind of want to avoid it. <laughs> I already read it, so don't worry. All right, fuck. Well, he <laughs> cited uh, Rao from Fist of the North Star and Caesar from JoJo's. And those are really good examples. And actually, I think he was kind of right. Like, Mommy's death in Madoka Magica is probably one of the most talked about anime deaths, I think. I think it was because it was so out of left field for anybody who was watching it. And especially, again, this is this is like that titular moment where I was talking about where I saw Mommy's death and I texted you 
oh yeah, she dies. And you're like, do you understand the implications of that for the genre? And no, I mean, honestly, I didn't because, you know, I, I have an idea that the magical girl genre is supposed to be this lighthearted kind of shoujo-esque genre. And to see a character die so violently in episode three, I understood a little bit of the implication of that, but definitely not the full extent of it. I will say, given kind of the back and forth you're talking about between Shinbo and Urobochi, what was the role that Shinbo actually had in the final work then? Well, so he was the he's the director. So mm-hmm. he does what directors do, which is like take the full vision and and yeah. make it come to life with the characters in the script. So Urobuchi was really just writing the script, but mm-hmm. he was like, "You asked me to do this. I am putting to paper the vision yeah. that I have for the show, and then you can make it look however you want." Uh, that's, and, that's and the style of the show is yeah. very. Very Shimbo. If you've seen any of his other works, it looks mm-hmm. very unique. And we can talk about the designs of the witch's labyrinths and all these kind of things that are really, really cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the script was was all Urobuchi's. And I think that, again, I, I mentioned how I think it's amazing that Urobuchi was just a, able to say fuck you. But, you know, it's worth repeating that this is like pretty amazing that and pretty yeah. cool that he was just like, this is the story I want to tell. This is how I see it. And I don't care what the production team says. I don't care what the director says. Like, this is how this is how it's gone. You know, when we start talking about the movies, for example, maybe we will come back to this dialogue between the script yeah. writers and the directors yes. because I think there has been conflict. Okay, a few last things I wanted to mention about about the making of the show. So Urobuchi has has talked about the fact that he used a, a specific style to, to pace out the show, which I think is pretty interesting. So he followed basically a, a recipe for the first three episodes. In episode one, he wanted to throw the viewer into a specific part of the story and give no context. So you, he, want, he wanted viewers to just be completely immersed and not really know what's going on, which I think is interesting because that is what happens in the first episode. And it's also what happens in Rebellion, the movie. So it kind of feels like he's sort of repeating that, that sort of trick. In episode two, he wanted to define the rules governing some of the story setting, which which is also true. That's what happens. That's kind of why mommy is there and also why it's so shocking that she just gets fucking wrecked because <laughs> she's sort of guiding Sayaka and Madoka and, and, and the other girls about, you know, their roles as, as potential magical girls. And then in episode three, he wanted to sort of divulge the revelation in the plot to hook the viewer, which is obviously what fucking happens when mommy just gets fucking her head chopped off which is another like great meme that comes out of the show is just mommy's head getting chopped that's a meme yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that along with the homura did nothing wrong so we gotta <laughs> wait for rebellion to talk about that all right and then the last point was that madoka has a lot of themes but one of sort of the central tensions of the show is this mashup of cuteness and, and darkness and so Urobuchi also designed QB to be the epitome of that. And I read that he took inspiration from a lot of horror. The idea was to design QB as a being who was not necessarily evil by nature, but rather have his lack of emotions be what makes him really frightening. And I think that's pretty interesting. So he was meant to sort of highlight the moral and ethical dissonance between himself and, and his sort of not having any emotions and not being able to understand human motivations. And sort of the philosophies and and motivations for these young middle school girls. I can see that. I can see how QB's personality is so What personality? Well, (laughs) I mean, exactly. Like, the the way that he interacts with the world is so at odds with the way that the creature is presented to the world. 
And, and there's a, a dramatic shift as the story goes along because QB is presented early on, colored in a very bright fashion, often surrounded by like Madoka's dolls um, in some of the early episodes. And as we go later through the show, a lot of the way that QB is framed is through shadow, is through darkness. So that dramatic shift I found very interesting. Um, and I think as we go through the themes of that sh- uh, of the show, We'll see a lot of these shifts coming into play. We'll see a lot of the the dissonance, as you're saying, between humanity and the way that QB and the other incubators behave with the world. Yeah. All right. Enough foreplay. Let's let's get into this. <laughs> let's get into the show. So I'm face palming right now. Okay, <laughs> you're the one that said we should not do this. All right. So here's how I've sort of broken this down. So typically, when I when we do a deep dive and I and I go through thinking about how to group episodes together to to discuss them. I usually pick, you know, a few episodes together that make sense. And I was doing this exercise for Madoka, and it was pretty interesting how this worked out. And I, I don't have any idea if this is how it was written or intended to be written. It just struck me as I was doing it. So I blocked the episodes in groups of three. And the reason that I did that is because every set of three episodes basically ends with a twist that redefines part of how you think about the story. And... I have, again, I have no idea if that's on purpose, but I find it super, super interesting. So we're going to go through all 12 episodes of, of the series in these groups of three. We'll talk about sort of what the central twist is and maybe go through some of the episodes and, and give our thoughts. Yeah, we're going to fight. Don't. <laughs> all right. Episodes one through three. The theme of these episodes is basically... Here's your typical Magic or Girl show, but it's not actually your typical Magic or Girl show. And that's sort of highlighted by the twist at the end of episode three, which is Mommy's death. So do you want to maybe go through some of the stuff that happens in, in, in the first few episodes? We start off in episode one. We're introduced to Madoka. Um, we get to see some of her family and her family life, which all seems normal. And the main event that happens in episode one is that Homuro actually enrolls at Madoka school and seems to know her somehow. So Madoka and Saika follow Kyuubi's voice and see Homura trying to kill Kyuubi. So this is our introduction to the magical girls. Uh, Madoka and Saika, just two normal middle school girls, don't seem to have a lot of darkness in their lives. And this seems to be one of the first times they're introduced to this dark, somewhat violent nature that we're going to see for the rest of the show. Yeah. So Kyuubi is basically just this, if you haven't seen the show, you should look it up, but he's just this like little cat that can like, I mean, often in magical girl shows, there is like some being that can like turn you a normal middle schooler into a magical girl. And that's basically Mm -hmm. Kyuubi in in the show. So I will say Madoka is a fucking excellent rewatch. And I would highly recommend anybody that hasn't seen it in a while or that just has seen it once to at some point watch it again, because it's kind of like any show that is really has a lot of twists in it and is laying out hints at what those twists are going to be throughout the show. You get a ton of that in Madoka. And so Homura seeming to know Madoka early on. The first time mm-hmm. you watch it, you're like, that probably means something. But like, I, I don't really know what's going on. I just started the show. Watching it again, you're, you definitely know exactly what's happening and you can key in on how Homura is behaving. Similarly, with Homura trying to kill Kyuubi the first time they the the two girls, Madoka and, and Sayaka, interact with Kyuubi is like, what the fuck is going on? And of course, then Mommy comes in and saves them. So this is pretty much that formula we were discussing that Urobuchi laid out where you're just thrown into the narrative and some things don't make sense. And you have to sort of figure out why they don't. I will say one of the the scenes that left the, the most impression on me is that scene on the bridge when Homura takes basically Madoka out 
of the class and gives her a warning saying that if you love your family, if you love your friends, don't consider doing the thing that you're thinking about, right? So it's like a very nebulous kind of warning. Madoka has no idea what she's talking about. But all she knows is that in in the intro sequence, Madoka had dreamed that she had met this girl, which ended up being Homero. So that that was why there was this like weird, unusual feeling that maybe I've met her, maybe I haven't, like I've dreamed about her. And Homero basically says, no, don't do this thing that you're thinking about doing. Like reconsider it if you love all of the things you do. And it basically sets up one of the central tensions of the show going forward, which is for some unknown reason, Homura is hellbent on preventing Madoka from becoming a magical girl. We don't know why. And QB is basically repeatedly being like, form this contract with me. I can grant you any wish as soon as you, you know, become a magical girl. And you should, especially you, Madoka, because you are you have the potential to be like the most powerful magical girl ever. And we don't really mm-hmm. know why any of these things are true until later in the show. Yep. All right. So episode two then really starts to key us in on some more information. Mommy shows in and she's this badass magical girl that seems to have everything under control. She explains to Sayaka and Madoka that her power comes from this object called a soul gem. And she received this soul gem in exchange for a wish. She becomes a magical girl and has to hunt what are called witches. That's basically the the, the premise. It's kind of standard for, for a magical girl show. They together sort of speculate that Homura may have been trying to avoid them from meeting QB because of the grief seed competition. So grief seeds are what result from killing a witch. And so these are really valuable because they cleanse your soul gem and that your soul gem is what gives you power as a magical girl. And so obviously these are highly sought after. And so mm-hmm. basically <laughs> their speculation is like there's some fucking capitalism involved and we have to <laughs> compete against each other for these soul gems or these grief seeds, which you're fucking wrong, guys. That's like not what's happening at all. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting how Mommy and Homura's relationship starts off on the wrong foot for sure. Mommy we get to see her interacting with Madoka and Sayaka, and she seems like a motherly character. And I yeah. think that's how she was designed. And the way that she treats Homura at the beginning, she's also kind of neutral towards her, has no animosity towards her at the beginning. But the way their relationship develops as we go along, we get to see Mommy actually dislike a character and potentially foreshadow violence. And so that difference is, is something that I found interesting, especially because Homura is really pinned as the antagonist to the show early on. Yeah, she is. And Homura is, we'll talk more about this later, of course, but Homura is very interestingly depicted in these first few episodes as like very cold, no love or emotion shown. She just seems to be really at odds with the rest of the characters. And you feel like something is there under the surface and there's some reason why she's acting antagonistically towards all of them but you have no idea why she's like Mm -hmm. sort of trying to help them but also telling them not to do things that seem to make sense Mm -hmm. and she's very much just playing that role so also in this episode you get a first look at one of the witch labyrinths which mommy defeats in in front of madoka and and sayaka i'm very curious to hear what did you think about the design of maybe the show in general but specifically the aesthetic of of the witch labyrinths i think they were really cool it was i will say at the beginning it was a little unsettling because i was like there was this abrupt shift in the animation style from what you would normally assume as 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 an animation style with these kind of like cutesy girl characters and then suddenly we get into this alice in wonderland-esque 
kind of animation. It really reminded me of Persona, uh, if you've ever played the games. Yeah, interesting. Uh, it, it had this kind of like game-like, as I mentioned, Alice in Wonderland feel to it, where the characters are moving in these like blocky ways. Um, there's a lot of just like fluff going on in the background, where the like all the the witches' minions are basically weird troops or soldiers or children or stuff like that, and they're just like flying around the screen, and you're like, okay, it's hard to take. It's hard to understand everything going on. Yeah. And the only thing that we kind of have a concrete grasp on are the character designs for the girls going into the actual, into the uh, labyrinth. It's very interesting that you use the word unsettling. I think that's that's a really great word to, to describe. In hindsight, as soon as I saw some of the Homura stuff, but as soon as I specifically saw the design of the labyrinth, I was like, yeah, this can't be normal Magical Girl show. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. something, something's fucked up here. And I would yeah. hope that most people also sort of saw that. Like, there's no way a normal Magical Girl show is going to have witch labyrinth designs that look like that. And especially the, the music also by Calafina is really, really good for a lot mm -hmm. of these, just the whole OSD in general, but specifically the music and a lot of the labyrinths. And it's like, yeah, you this is unsettling. Like so, something here is frog. And the other thing that was very cool to me is that the witches, just like the magical girls that they're being defeated by, they all have their own personalities. And the entire labyrinth is its own small universe, right? Yeah. So you see this theme within all of these labyrinths. We'll, we'll talk about it later. We'll see that theme play out, especially yes. when some of the magical girls transform into the actual witches. Okay, episode three, we get a first look at Sayaka's relationship with the violinist who Ravi fucking despises because he sent me like eight different what screenshots. What a piece of, of shit, dude. Guy. What an absolute piece of shit. Yeah, not, not a great look for, for my guy. But also Mommy reveals that what her wish was and it was that she was in she was in a traffic accident and didn't really have time to consider what her wish might be. She sort of just had to make the wish on demand so she didn't die. And upon hearing Sayaka's story, she warns her that she needs to be very careful about what her true intentions are when she's making a wish for someone else. Another important mechanism, which I know we're going to talk about at, at some point, is how the nature of the wish that any girl makes when they're turning into a magical girl also dictates the powers that they have as a magical girl. And I know this rubbed you the wrong way in a, one specific case, which we will talk about towards the end of this, but I think th that's important to say here. So then Homura joins again and warns them that against fighting this other witch that they're about to hunt, but they confront the witch named Charlotte anyways. Mommy is decapitated after she thinks she's won in a pretty gruesome fashion. She even went to the length to tie up Homura before they entered the labyrinth so that Homura would not bother them. And Homura is set free after Mommy dies. So Homura kills the witch. And QB, being the fucking opportunist that he is, <laughs> pleads for the two girls to make a contract with him because, of course, you gotta take advantage of Sayaka and Matoka after they've just been fucking traumatized. <laughs> so there is, there is a lot to this episode. I will say that every single stage of this episode had death flags through it, and I remember mentioning that to you. And for, for people, again, that had not seen anything like this, this deconstruction... Those may have been able to get a pass. You may have just been like, okay, you know, this is just the way it was written. But in today's day and age, having seen all of the further iterations of the deconstructions that we've seen, I was watching this being like, okay, mommy is 100% going to die by yeah. the end of this episode. Yeah. As soon as she lays out her story 
as soon as we see Homura interacting with her and she ties up Homura and then once we get there and she seems overconfident and we ha- kind of have this crescendo where Mommy finally reveals herself not to be the, the fully self-assured brave character that she seems to be. All of those things put together, I was like, something has to happen to her. This is worrisome. Yeah, you texted me that multiple times and I was like, well, he fucking got it. I mean, I felt similarly. I think that knowing that it's a classic, knowing that it's written by Urobuchi, knowing that we only have 12 episodes, you feel like shit is going to happen. Like, there's no way that they're just going to have two episodes in a row where they just fight witches and everything goes okay. You know, it's like, it's like that was too easy, you know, and that's yeah. exactly what I felt like watching it when mommy fights Charlotte, the witch, and seems to have killed her. You're like, well, that went fucking well. Why was the whole world so against this? And then the fucking witch just transforms and plop goes the head. That's, you know, that's basically <laughs> how it worked. So I wanted to expound a little bit on that on that point yeah. that I made, especially about mommy and her her kind of like multifacetedness, her her character. Just more generally, each of the characters, I think, in the show behaves in a very human way. So they're all hypocritical, they're emotional, they're irrational. And I think these are hallmarks of humanity that serve to create this contrast between humans and the incubators, uh, which QB is later revealed to be later on. Um, we, we've been talking about this, this darkness within QB. We'll mention what that is, but you eventually see and understand that QB doesn't have emotions. He's kind of like a brick wall when it comes to understanding what human emotions are. And all of the characters are designed and written and developed so well to show you the emotions that they have. I think Mommy is the first example of that. So as I said, she is multifaceted, right? She she has this brave, self-assured face that she puts on as the most veteran magical girl. But in episode three, we really get to that climax where we get to see how lonely and fragile she actually is when Madoka is kind of talking about, and I fucking hated this, when Madoka is talking about the wish that she wants to make to become a magical girl, she essentially says, I don't, I can't think of a wish. I've been thinking about it. So why don't I just become a magical girl for the hell of it? And you're just (laughs) like, I'm going to die right now. I'm literally going to shoot myself in the face, Madoka. If you have the opportunity to make anything you want imaginable and you're just like, Nah, I've never really had anything I wanted to do. I'll just become a magical she, girl. She's a middle school girl with a perfectly normal life. I don't. She just wants to hang out with her friends. <laughs> what do you offer her? This is the very first instance where I started actually dying inside <laughs> watching this show. But at that moment, Ma- Mommy does reveal how she uh, became a magical girl, what wish she had to make, and gives, again, this warning, which we're going to get a lot of warnings in this show. Uh, Homura's we got one from just Homura. dishing out warnings left exactly. and right. We got from one from Homura, and here's where we get one from Mommy, where Mommy is like, no, think carefully about what you want to wish for. The darker interpretation of that being that she could have also wished for maybe her family to have survived the car accident, but in the moment she didn't and only wished for herself to survive. So that being the kind of underlying warning to Madoka that, you know, what you wish for has to be something that you think deeply about. That moment where they're standing together right before entering the witch's chambers is one that I think was the climax of the first three episodes. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think it cements Mommy's role as sort of the the veteran. You really expect her to be the character that is going to guide these girls as they become magical girls for, for the rest of the show. And I think that's part of also what makes her death all that much more 
impactful is that she's not going to be there to guide them and they have to figure it the fuck out on their own with this, you know, now traumatized with this QB who you feel like you can't fucking trust and with Homero who you really have no idea what the fuck she's up to. So, mm-hmm. you know, their place of comfort and their mentor figure just completely falls off for the story. Yeah, and I think here, you know, moving into the next set of episodes, I think this is the moment where we get the transition where Madoka and Saika were like, okay, I definitely want to be a magical girl. I just have to think about what wish I have to make. To now being more like, well, do I really want to be a magical girl? Because Homura had specified that don't do it. Don't even think about it. And Mommy had been like, be very careful about what you wish for if you do actually want to do it. The entire reason that 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 Saika and Madoka were with Mommy when she died is because they were kind of on this training arc where they were being shown what it is to be a magical girl. So in at the beginning of episode four, we really are at the point where Madoka and Saika are questioning whether they want to be magical girls at all. And what happens is one of their other friends gets put into a situation where she is under essentially the uh, powers of a witch. So this is what they call the witch's kiss. And this witch's kiss leads this classmate to become part of a collective suicide. And when Madoka finds out about this, she tries to stop this collective suicide. And so we're again at this point where Madoka is like, if I had magical girl powers, I could have stopped this. However... Because I don't, I am still a human. I can't do anything about it, but I'm too afraid to actually take the leap to become a magical girl and have this role put upon me where now I'm forced to put myself in danger. I'm forced to potentially die in the same way that uh, mommy had done. Yeah, and of course, then what happens is Sayaka appears as a magical girl and defeats the witch after having formed a contract with QB and turned into a magical girl herself. I think this episode, we're already starting to see a lot of the darker sort of themes. Like there's a collective suicide plotline in this magical girl show that is already very, very dark. I think this is also one of the instances where I mentioned when I was talking about the production that Robuchi really studied some things that were typical in the magical girl genre and wanted to completely do away with them. And I think one of the things that is often overlooked is like, why does every girl in every magical girl show just be like, hell yeah, being a magical girl sounds great. I want to do that, mm-hmm. right? And so here he's turning that on its head and being having Madoka and Sayaka be completely traumatized from mommy's death and be like, hey, do we actually want to do this? Like having a life where you have to fight evil witches for one single wish does not sound fucking worth it, like to me at least. And so he makes the characters actually question that, which I found really, really interesting. This is, I guess, where one of the frustrations with what with, with the show stems from. Maybe this is going to be the first point of uh, discussion sure. between us. So Saika's wish, you know, we, we discussed that she becomes a, uh, a, a magical girl and saves Madoka, saves her classmate, prevents the collective suicide from occurring. We know that Saika's wish is to heal Kamijo. Um, again, Kamijo is that violinist friend of hers. The who was dickhead in, violinist. Yes. He was in an accident. He can no longer play violin. So he's kind of stuck in this, this hospital room. And Saika being a childhood friend, of course, we have the childhood friend love interest that's commonplace in anime. But being the childhood friend, she wants to help him. She wants to essentially get him back on track. And their relationship is clearly worsening. Um, there's this 
moment which really made me hate the guy where Saika is bringing him music to kind of keep him in good spirits and he breaks the CD player and is like, why the fuck are you still yeah. introducing me to music? I'm depressed. Yeah. And I'm just like, all right, dude, well, screw you. <laughs> but Saika has been mulling over the idea of healing Kamijo as her wish. And that selflessness from a middle school girl was something that I was just like, how is this possible? Okay, well, I guess one one quick question is, is that even selflessness? Because she's very clearly in love with him and she thinks that if he is happy again and can, can leave the hospital, then they could potentially be together or he has some sort of future. So it is part selflessness, but there is there is aspects of, of selfishness in there because she she has feelings for him, right? The reason I do think it is selflessness is because Mommy knows what Sayaka is going to wish for and explicitly tells her not to do it if it's just for herself. And so there is a moment in the show, in, in the previous episodes, where Sayaka's like, what if, for example, this girl had a friend who was damaged? And you're like, all right, could, could this be like any more concealed? And Mommy's like, no, why, why the fuck would you do that? Yeah. Uh, it should be something grander than just a wish for another person. The, the lead up to Saika's wish was where this frustration that I've been talking about started building. And before you completely go off on me, let me just explain this, right? So her wish was to heal Kamido's arm. I think that was overly specific because given that QB has basically put no bounds whatsoever on this wish system, at least I was confused about why this wish was so specific. At the same time, though, you know, I kind of had to accept Saika's wish because, as we just said, our characters are a bunch of middle school girls that do not understand the implications or the consequences of their wishes. So this conflict, though, between what Saika wished for and the realm of all possibilities of wishes was definitely uncomfortable for me. And that's not just because of Saika, but because of the wish system in a more general sense. So maybe here is, is the moment where we should discuss, what did you think about the system for granting the girl's wishes? Because Saika is the first girl to transform that we see. Yeah, I mean, we've had a little bit of this discussion offline. So I know that generally one of your central complaints towards the show is that having a completely unbounded wish system leaves you feeling like you don't know, you know what the upper limits are, what people can wish for, all that kind of stuff. I will, I will, gr I will grant you that it's it's true. However, I do think that facts. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, I don't have anything to say. I, the reason that I like it is because I think it provides a lot of opportunities for very interesting storytelling and very interesting guesswork from an audience perspective. So knowing that the wishes are completely unbounded, and knowing well, we don't know this now, but knowing later that QB doesn't actually know the extent to which some wishes will create certain magical girl powers. He doesn't know what, what the implications of certain types of wishes will be. It leaves the viewer, and, and this is what I was doing as I was watching the show, being like, okay, how do you, how do you optimize this wish that you get? What, what kind of powers are derived from the wish? And it kept me guessing and being like, okay, this, you could have wished for this, you could, you could wish for this. And, and eventually, as, as the plot progresses, really thinking about, okay, what wishes makes sense to progress the plot to solve the dilemma that some of the girls are in. So that's why I find it interesting. I think from an, from an audience perspective, it, it keeps you on your toes and very engaged in, in the story. It's interesting that you found this to be a positive because I found that exact same thing where I was constantly guessing and trying to optimize a distraction from the actual show. Hmm. I mean, it was a way that I was engaging with the show. It was a way that, you know, kept me coming back and being like, 
Saika, what the fuck, dude? Why are you not wishing for something greater, like the ability to heal any injury or the ability to bring like anybody you want back to, to a better state? I think also specifically for Sayaka, just to focus on on her wish for a second. First of all, you said the obvious. She's a fucking middle school girl, so she's gonna just wish for the things she actually wants. But also, if you want to, if you want to read a little bit deeper, we've seen many times in other shows, other media that have like some wish system where somebody wishes for something that should contain the thing they actually want to happen, and the wish goes wrong, and they, you know, it gets fulfilled in some other really weird way. This is like common knowledge. I don't want to just like dump common knowledge onto the show. But if you were in that situation and you really wanted one specific outcome, even if that one specific outcome is not imaginative in its thinking, Mm -hmm. you might just be like, I just want this very specific thing to happen. So I'm going to be very specific about my wish to make sure it happens and that nothing goes wrong. But yes, in theory, Sayaka should have just wished for something better. (laughs) You know? You know, the reason I was uncomfortable with it is because there is no indication at this point that there are any downsides to the wish system. Mommy and and Homura have been cautious about it. The downsides are you have to fucking fight as a Magicka girl dangerously for the rest of your life. (laughs) To the the wish itself, not to the consequences of becoming a Magicka girl. Like the wish itself, QB is basically kind of dangling this in front of them being like, I'll give you anything you want. You can yeah. basically have anything unbounded as a wish. And for me, that that's uncomfortable. I don't like that. And, and that's built off of this hard rule that I have that most shows where there is an unbounded power system, as we talked about in our Shonen episode, where there is this unbounded wish system here, leads to a show that can just keep upping itself. And that is exactly what happens at the end of this so, uh, show with Madoka. Uh, we'll wait to the end to discuss that. But at least here, when we got to that climax of the entire show in the last episode, I really just lost my mind. I think the, the main difference for me is that in a shonen, you are going to get something long running. And so if you don't have any idea what characters' relative powers are, you're, you're just going to keep getting this power escalation problem. I don't think Madoka has a power escalation problem. And the reason that I don't think it has that oh, is... Oh, when Madoka becomes straight Jesus? <laughs> well, that does happen, but... <laughs> The show is not primarily based around action and characters just fighting each other. Also, it's not long running, so characters aren't just constantly one-upping each other. You do get this like crazy unbounded power that Madoka gets towards the end of the series, but that power is only achieved to solve the narrative of the show, not to just keep beating up people or fighting people who are stronger. Um, And so I think because it's so planned and because it fits into the themes of the show and the the narrative of the show and the plot of the show, that's the reason why I don't think it's a power escalation thing. Like power escalation typically arises from, okay, the show is going on forever and like this character is this strength. So we have to up that in order for the show to continue being interesting because if the main character doesn't progress and the rivals don't progress, then like, what are we doing? Madoka doesn't have that because it's it's all meant to be this way. You just, as the viewer, don't know what the ceiling is. So if that makes you uncomfortable while you're watching it, I think that that is fair. To me, it's a really fun way to, I think, engage with the show as I was watching it. Yeah, I think this will be the, the, the segment where we have to agree to disagree because I do think that the lore that they're building has this power escalation and we do see it in rebellion again with homura and we're completely unsettled with how homura is doing the things she's doing at the end of rebellion yeah, sure don't worry i'll just i'll just pull the subreddit for madoka magica and we'll just see who they agree with and i guarantee it's the me. subreddit for madoka magica bro <laughs> <laughs> what do you think they're gonna say <laughs> Hey 
All right, so let's let's maybe wrap up episodes four through six. So we talked yeah. about Sayaka's wish. That was revealed at the end of episode four. The backstory is given in, in episode five. Sayaka then goes on some magical girl business, tracking down a familiar. She's intercepted by Kyoko, who is a rival magical girl who, quote unquote, farms witches by letting them feed on humans and becoming full-fledged witches with grief seeds to harvest. Homura appears to protect Sayaka. I, I did leave out a, a crucial detail, which is that Madoka is really worried about Sayaka after she becomes a magical girl and her meeting the same fate that Mommy met. So she asks Homura to protect Sayaka. Homura's like, absolutely not. I can't make promises that I can't keep, which makes, again, makes a lot of sense once you know Homura's entire story towards, towards the end of the show. But Homura appears to save Sayaka anyway. So this is the first introduction to Kyoko. That's basically the, the entire episode. And then uh, the final episode from, from this block, episode six, QB continues telling Madoka that she has so much potential as a magical girl. And Homura actually asks Kyoko to form an alliance against something called, and I'm going to fucking butcher this fucking pronunciation, but it's called Walpurgisnacht. I don't know why it was with the Germanic I, I like name the little German You like it? Yeah. So it's this crazy powerful thing later revealed to be a witch that is appearing in, in two weeks. And Kyoko then continues her conflict with Sayaka, goads her into another fight. And Madoka is desperate to stop it and throws Sayaka's soul gem off a bridge, thinking that, okay, if I take the source of her power away, they'll have to stop fighting for a second. And what happens is the twist that couches these, these set of episodes, which is that Sayaka suddenly turns lifeless. And so Homura has to rush to retrieve the soul gem and bring Sayaka back to life. And it's revealed that soul gems actually contain the magical girl's souls uh, and are not just the source of their power. They actually split their consciousness and QB just neglected to tell them because he's a fucking evil little cat. So, well, this is the first point in the show, at least, that we find out that becoming a magical girl, besides having to fight witches, is something much darker than it could have possibly seemed. Yep. You know, maybe maybe you can clear this up for me. This was something that I found confusing because the characters all seem to put a lot of emphasis on the location of the container of their soul. So I found I found the concept of the, you know, the duality of the soul that it can be separated from the body and placed into this external container, which is the soul gem. I found that to be an interesting concept, but why was the location of the soul overly important to these girls? It, it just seemed to be something that didn't make a lot of sense to me, given that QB is out here explaining the utilitarian nature of this, like, oh, you can protect your soul better if it's in this little thing, as opposed to in your body, you can prevent yourself from feeling pain, there are all these other benefits. Well... I think we can sum that up as QB is a fucking dualist and Madoka and Sayaka <laughs> are not. It's a very, very simple. They've just thought about the philosophical implications of dualism and they have decided that it is not for them. No, it all, it we're, all, we're, all, we're all in neuroscience out here. Yeah. You know, you know what dualism is. So. In, in, that's philosophy, first of all. What the fuck are you talking about? Oh, sorry. I just remember you're not a neuroscientist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. No, in all seriousness, I think, again, they're fucking middle school girls if somebody told you your soul exists in this tiny little gem that this cat created you'd be like what the fuck cat why didn't you fucking tell me and why can someone just throwing this at a distance from me cause me to momentarily die like i think that's like fair I, to I, be I scared mean, I, about i hope you can at least see that i think it's problematic to just keep explaining away a lot of the 
shows more confusing points by saying they're middle school girls. I think it's totally fine to be able to say the wishes they make are not fully thought out because they're young and immature. But at the same time, when they're having full-on discussions about the location of their soul and, like, you know, Madoka is explaining to Sayaka, like, the consequences of becoming a magical girl in, like, a, a morbid sense, I'm like, they're behaving above the level of a middle school girl, but some of the way that they're actually acting goes against that. So I don't know if that's just a, you know, a, a hypocrisy to the show that we have to get comfortable with. I think it's also pretty fair that the main point of contention here would be that, okay, QB just like didn't fucking tell us this. And it becomes clear later on that QB is not disclosing all of the information that the girls would likely have wanted to know before making a decision on whether to become a magic girl or not. And that actually does happen. So it's basically the first sign. I mean, obviously you kind of distrust QB because you sort of know how, how this show is, how the show is going to work after mommy gets her fucking head cut off. But it's the first sign for the characters themselves that QB is actually being deceitful and might have his own motivations beyond just, Hey, I'll give you powers and grant you a wish, you know? Yeah. I didn't know this was going to become a PSA for consent out here. (laughs) It is. uh... Everything is a PSA for consent. Consent (laughs) is great. All right. Let's, let's transition to the next block. Yeah. Okay, so I titled episode seven through nine Sayaka's Demise. And so let's fucking This is like straight up the, the spoiler to like Naruto when this the episode is titled like Asuma Dies. Yeah. It's like, okay, thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're here, hopefully you don't mind the spoilers. So the the big twist at the end of this block is that magical girls become witches as they corrupt their as their own soul gems get corrupted and also the revelation which we've already mentioned which is that qb is an incubator which is this alien species that has a very utilitarian motivation for the whole magical girl system so let's just quickly run through some some of what happens in the episode so again all the girls are super mad at qb about not disclosing the soul thing uh is just like you guys never fucking asked so why would i have told you uh and then makes all the utilitarian arguments that we mentioned about why having a separate consciousness is good and the fact that it allows them to endure more pain and he fucking demonstrates it on sayaka which like fuck you you fucking smug cat <laughs> i love that yeah of course i do. love qb <laughs> questionable we get kyoko's backstory and that she made her contract to become a magical girl so that her father's sermons uh, would be heard. Her father was a priest. And that ended in tragedy as her father ended up committing suicide and also killing her entire family, leaving her completely alone in the world. And then Sayaka, now feeling like she is a magical girl, A, and doesn't have a soul inside her body, B, uh, feels that she can never actually truly be with Kyosuke now that she's not really human. Yeah, so I put a lot of emphasis on the girls caring so much about where their soul was. And that's because for Saika, it is truly a turning point. This is the point where she starts to not only question why she became a magical girl, but also starts to fall deeper into this depression. I don't think that she was that concerned about her wish. She seemed to be happy with it. And she, you know, even told Kyoko that she never wants to regret anything. But this is the first instance where we see her starting to regret something because her soul is now separated from her body. So this was like a, a again, a centerpiece of the show, this, this argument between the location of the soul. It's interesting that we're having a whole set of three episodes. Where we're going to talk mostly about Sayaka 
And the last few episodes are going to be a little bit about Madoka, but actually a lot about Homura. And the first three episodes were about Mami. And actually, Madoka might not be the main character, <laughs> which is another way that this is sort of a subversion. Like, I, I put this in the show notes towards the end, but, like, Madoka does not become a magical girl until the last episode of this series. And the show is called Madoka Magica, which is, I think, pretty remarkable. First point, uh, I think Saiko is one of my favorite characters. Just to see her kind of... Yeah. She, she, she starts off as a lighthearted character. She seems to be headstrong and stubborn. And to see how that stubbornness transforms into the darker, deeper depression that she eventually falls into, that character development I thought was one of the best in the show. She's also Urobuchi's favorite character, just by the way. Nice. Yeah. The second point I want to make is uh, you told us that she was going to end up with Kyosuke. Um, I think you mean Kamijo because Kyosuke is the protagonist from Oremo. No, his last name is Kyosuke. His name is Kyosuke Kamijo, you fucking dick. Okay, all right. Well, <laughs> Kyosuke is the name of the guy Earl's from Oremo. So all right, well, you, you mentioned, that's fine. You, we, I was like mentioning I... him the entire time as uh, Kamijo. Okay, Kamijo so slash to... Kyosuke, same fucking guy. <laughs> I don't know, man. You, you had that Freudian slip there. I was no, like... I, no, I did not. I haven't even seen Oremo. <laughs> You're missing out. No, I am not. All right, so really the next few episodes, Sayaka continues her spiral into deep depression because she has to watch Hitomi confess to Kyosuke slash Kabijo. Uh, and there's this really interesting sh scene where she's on the train and basically implied to have just murdered two people. And eventually her soul gem breaks and turns into a grief seed. And you get this like off-screen scene of QB sort of musing about how magical girl is the corresponding term for a witch who has yet to mature. And so Sayaka is used as the catalyst for the revelation that the cycle is that you have a regular girl who becomes a magical girl, her soul gem gets corrupted, and she becomes a witch. And I thought that reveal was actually done pretty effectively. It was done effectively. It was done very darkly. Yeah. And I don't think Madoka had the... Uh reaction to it that I was necessarily expecting. She seems to take it a little more neutrally than I would have taken it when we are considering that QB has now tricked generations of girls yeah. into becoming magical girls for the purpose of then transitioning to witches. I will say that I think the actual you know, science behind the way that QB is explaining why the magical girls have to become magical girls. I thought that was really well done. It was like a very cool and interesting scientific concept. They just kind of shoehorned in there. Yeah, so that's all of episode nine where QB is basically monologuing about what incubators are and that he's from this basically alien race and they basically use the magical girl to witch system to harvest energy specifically in their transition from hope to despair. So he's like, you guys need, to, your soul gem needs to break and you need to suffer so that we can harvest this energy. And this is all basically in an effort to prevent the heat death of the universe, which is the, the scientific concept that... Entropy, baby. Yeah, it's basically entropy. And this is also where you get the sort of revelation that these incubators are emotionless and they don't understand human morals. And so they think that this is fine because it's very utilitarian. And, and again, I, I don't think it was that Madoka didn't have the, the reaction I would have had. It's just that she didn't seem to push QB as much as I thought she would. QB is out here just basically being like, yeah, we turn we turn magical girls into into witches. That process, you know, gets back some of the energy we lost through entropy. And I'm being like, Madoka, what the fuck, dude? Like, you should be losing your mind at this. Yeah. Well, a lot of stuff has happened to our girl in the past, yeah. you know, run of the show. Yeah. Okay, so then you have this transition where Sayaka is becoming a witch. 
Madoka still believes that they can somehow save Sayaka. So Kyoko sacrifices herself fighting Sayaka as they're trying to do so. QB is out here just taunting Homura, saying she'll not be able to stop this Walpurgisnacht without Madoka becoming a magical girl, especially now that Kyoko's gone. And Sayaka actually dies. So when I mentioned at the beginning that some magical girls were going to die, well, here you go. You meant all of them, right? Multiple magical girls are dying. (laughs) So there's two things that I found very interesting about this. The first being that we finally get a cap on Sayaka's demise. Um, We had seen her transform all the way from, again, this very human character that has these emotions. Again, you know, when I talked talked about Mommy, when I talked about how she was multifaceted, Sayaka was in the same way, very multifaceted. She had this harder side, this stubborn side to her. When she was a human, she acted based on impulse. And as soon as she became a magical girl, we also saw this, you know, softer, more loving side to her when she was originally visiting Kamijo. She was, you know, she spent essentially her life trying to save his arm, as stupid as that sounds. She lost Kamijo. That was one of the the big transitions that caused her to fall deeper into this depression. And eventually she ends up as, as a witch. So that full trajectory of her arc just shows how human she is. Um, I thought, again, that's why she's one of my favorite characters, because she kind of epitomizes that difference between the girls, the human girls, and the incubators. Because QB's out here being like, I don't really understand why you're falling into this depression, but I'm all for it because you're going to help save the heat death of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> that, was, that was point one. The second point is that I think Saika's demise really shows us how quickly the development happened between Saika and Kyoko. Because Kyoko originally was ready to kill Saika and Saika the same way. But in the span of three episodes, these characters really do show that if they had met under other circumstances, they might have been fast friends. And the movie Rebellion actually proves that. So... That development eventually leading Kyoko to sacrifice herself for Saika is just a moment where I was like, how quickly did this relationship develop? This is actually like one of the most beautiful capstones to a character arc that I've seen in a long time. One thing that is very well done about Madoka Magica, well, I think there are a lot of things that are very well done about Madoka Magica, but one thing in particular, I think, is that there is not a lot of wasted time in the plot. And part of that stems from how well thought out and and planned it was, like we talked about it at the top of the show. But every scene and every part of the script has a purpose and it's there for a reason. There is no filler. There is no waste of time. Every everything is everything is there that needs to be there. And you can really scrutinize every part of the show if you really want to, because it's very tightly written in its 12 episodes, I think. Mm-hmm. What do you think about uh, Kyoko's character? We spent barely any time on her. Yeah. Um, I don't have a ton to say about her. I think I mean, I think she brings an interesting element as a magical girl that is outspoken and slightly antagonistic that you you know might expect that sort of trope from from a different show. And we do sort of need her as that style of magical girl to interact with the rest of the cast. I think she's also important to the plot and to, and to highlight Sayaka's uh, sort of ultimate fate and her entire arc. She's not that interesting of a character to me beyond that and urobuchi Damn, get wrecked bro. <laughs> she's just trying to min max out here i know right? and and urobuchi has talked about the fact that his focus was on the overarching narrative rather than specific characters and i do think this is another show that 
I wouldn't say like I do think Sayaka is a good character. I think Homer is a great character. I think there are a lot of good characters in Madoka Magica, but I wouldn't say the characters are the standout part of the show. I think the entire sort of story and the way everything fits together is is what really is keeping me there as well as the deconstruction. So yeah, Kyoko is sort of an accessory <laughs> to me. Like I don't know what else to How say. How dare you? <laughs> Yeah, so I think Kyoko has one of the most uh, developed backstories, and it literally is a long part of whatever, episode eight or whatever it is, um, where she's explaining how her family was the cause of her making her wish and how she thought it would be better. We see a lot of her like quirks, a lot of her tics when it comes to why she is the girl that she is today because of the fact that she didn't have food on the table a lot when her family was in dire straits. That's why she's constantly eating. Why it is that she lives for herself because she thinks that any wishes made for other people like she made for her family only lead to destruction and chaos. So, you know, I think, again, she is one of the most well-developed characters we're seeing in the show. Yeah, I think I was exaggerating a little bit saying that she's an accessory. I do think there are. No, I seriously think you were being 100% serious. (laughs) Yeah, of course you're exaggerating. <laughs> like, she's definitely not my favorite character, but I think like any of the characters in the show, there are things that you can peel apart to, you know, add to the, the rest of the narrative. And, and I think Kyo- well, the things you were mentioning about, about Kyoko are, are, are true. All right, so let's move on to the climax of the show. So the, the last three episodes, episodes 10 through 12. So the main twists here are, of course, Homura's origin story, the time travel power that she has, where she repeats the, the same month over and over in a loop. And Madoka's Law of Cycles. So episode 10 is one of my favorites in the show because it's sort of self-contained where we get this alternate timeline where Homura is just the shy transfer student that is befriended by Madoka. And she's saved from a witch attack by Madoka and Mami who are magical girls. And you're sort of watching this and you're like, wait, what? what is happening right now? Like, what, what, what am I supposed to be watching? And soon it sort of all starts to click together. So... They are both later killed, Madoka and Mami, by Walpurgisnacht, which we've heard a ton about but have never actually seen, where here here we actually see it. Homura makes this immediate contract with Kyubi to send her back in time to protect Madoka. And I think you get this line from Kyubi where he's like, oh shit, I have like no idea what that wish is going to do to like fuck up the universe, but I have to grant it anyways. So she's sent back in time and she gets the power to basically reverse time as much as she wants she succeeds in in protecting madoka but madoka turns into a witch and homura realizes that qb has been lying to every magical girl ever about the ultimate fate of these girls and she attempts to tell the others in subsequent time loops they don't believe her and she basically continues to repeat the same month over and over again in hopes of finding some route to save madoka and continues failing and that's why her character goes from like this really shy, sweet, innocent girl that Madoka meets in in this timeline to the sort of cold, dishing out warnings left and right sort of antagonist that we've been led to believe throughout the rest of the show. I fucking love this. A, because I'm a sucker for time travel plots and time (laughs) loops. I just fucking love it. I think it's sick. I think it also makes perfect sense from like that that would be the derivation of her wish, that that would be the magic girl power that she gets. I also think it clicks together everything we know about Homura, who is basically the titular character and especially so in Rebellion. Like Rebellion is really her movie. I think she's even on the cover of the mm-hmm. promo material for it. So yeah, I really like this twist. I really like this episode. 
Considering how important Homura was in the entire show, what did you think of the development between Homura and Madoka? How do you think they became such fast friends that Homura was then willing to essentially die over and over and over and that over? That is interesting, and I think that's, that's a legitimate point of criticism of the show that you could make and that's sort of like the shortcut that you have to take in a 12 episode series i think to really i mean even you were talking about how the sayaka kyoko relationship was really nicely developed over three episodes and if you want to pace out the show the way that it's paced you don't have time to go to the this alternate timeline flashback and have like two episodes of madoka and old homura i guess original homura being really good friends like you just don't really have the space to do it so i think they try their best throughout the show to say, okay, like there are all these instances where you see that Homura cares a lot about Madoka. And then you see this brief, I guess, flashback sort of alternate timeline where Homura had basically no friends and Madoka befriended her. And you're supposed to connect the rest of the dots yourself. But I think that it's a fair sort of criticism of the show if you if you want to make it. Yeah, I'll make it. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's more that it's a, uh, I, I will say that at the root of all of my frustration with the show was the wish-granting system, not the characters. The characters for me were great. Some of them were well-developed. But the the wish system, I think, personally was something that was interesting, but not as fully well-thought-out as I hoped it would be. And the kind of defining moment of that is Madoka and her transformation. So let's let's talk about that before we fully talk about this. Yeah, so what happens in the last two episodes were that QB sort of reveals that Madoka has the potential to become such a powerful magical girl, which he's been going on and on about because of Homura's constant trips through time to try to save her. So she becomes this centerpiece of many different converging timelines. Madoka's shown the history of magical girls after Sayaka's funeral. Homura reveals the truth about herself. And Homura is about to turn into a witch herself when Madoka shows up and she's like, I've fucking decided what my wish is finally after 11 episodes of indecision. My favorite part, I think, of this entire show is that moment when she's standing on the steps of this, like, shelter and everybody's like, yeah, there's a fucking super tornado coming to fucking kill us all, right? And Madoka's like, yeah, peace, y'all. I'm leaving. Her mom is like, wait, what are you doing? How are you just going to leave? And Madoka, this middle schooler, convinces her mom to fucking leave a shelter to go out into a tornado. And you're just like, how? How is this happening? Yeah, that's some straight anime logic. <laughs> I don't have anything to say. Her mom's to like, that. Yeah, 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 you got to You got to live life a little bit. You got to go save your friends. Oh, but don't die in the process. Yeah, motherly instinct just really kicked in there for some reason. <laughs> All right. So what what is Madoka's wish? Madoka chooses to prevent all witches from coming into existence. And that is sort of the the payoff of the last 11 episodes. Again, I want to reiterate, it's episode 12 and only now is supposedly the main character becoming a magical girl. I think that's really, really noteworthy. So now we get this law of cycles. So the paradoxical nature of the wish that Madoka makes causes her to transcend into a godlike form and establish the law of cycles. So the law of cycles is that magical girls are now purified by Madoka. They disappear into a higher plane instead of becoming witches. Homura then returns to a world where Mami and Kyoko are still alive and only Homura remembers Madoka's existence. Magical girls still fight, but they fight these being called wraiths instead of witches. And Homura sort of vows to continue fighting in, in honor of Madoka. There's a lot to unpack here. All right? there's, there's, there's a it's lot to unpack here. seething here, here right? at the Madokami revelation. So hit me with it. <laughs> all right. All right. So 
How how well thought out do you think it was that Madoka essentially, again, just became God? I think it works in the narrative of the show. I think, again, your problem is going to be, why can she just become a god? Why did I not know that that was a thing that could happen in this universe? I think that it's set up that way because Kiwi didn't fucking know either and nobody actually knew because nobody has ever found out the true nature of the magical girl system and made a wish like that before. So it is something that all of the characters are discovering together at the same time. And it sort of makes sense if you wished for, specifically for witches, to to no longer exist. There has to be some mechanism for that to happen. And so Madoka herself, her magical girl power being to purify the witches is one way to do that. If you want to come up with alternate mechanisms for purifying witches that you think make more sense, there there might be some. But I think at least you're getting what you always wanted to get, which is somebody fucking thinking through their wish and choosing something impactful, which is what Madoka did. When we mentioned the paradoxical nature of the wish, it was because she wished for all witches, past, present, and future, to no longer exist. Yes. So, so to, to accomplish that... To completely say fuck you to all causality, Madoka essentially had to transcend to becoming a god. Yeah, great. See, it makes sense. You explained it yourself. What, what I explained it myself, but it makes <laughs> sense in the most illogical way possible. <laughs> and and so I, it was definitely one way to finish the show. Let me say that. Um, I just want to say that Ravi and our fucking text messages compared this to the ending for Darling and the Franks, which is fucking insane <laughs> that show actually makes no sense and you're out here comparing the two i wanted I being... to fucking die <laughs> i was being hyperbolic but at the same time that the the ending to madoka has the same feeling where we're going above and beyond any possible limits that should be set on the show yes it is one way to have accomplished getting Madoka to become a magical girl and transforming the world into a place where witches don't exist. However, I don't think that Madoka had to become literal Jesus to, <laughs> to solve the plot. It seems like a, a plot device that was shoehorned in and people are explaining away this actual event by saying, yes, the entire plot was leading up to this. No, it was not. Okay, the lore no, of the I will story not is getting I will built not accept, on. I will not accept this type of slander. If you want to tell me the end of Rebellion was shoehorned in or was put together, we can talk about that. The ending for the main series, like this is what Urobuchi wanted to write. You might not like it, but this is a, has been this was planned. It has not been explained away with some revisionist history. It was always It's meant not to me this. saying that it was it's not me saying that he didn't intend for this to happen. It's me saying that he shouldn't have actually allowed it to happen. Okay, I'm saying well, it's a poor I, example of story no, writing. No, not an example of story writing get where it comes in at the last second. This makes perfect sense in the universe of the show. <laughs> What like, do you mean? The, she rewrites the entire universe, bro. Yeah, I don't understand what your problem is with that. You're already watching a fucking what? show where this fucking alien cat is trying to prevent global warming by changing girls into magical girls and making them fight 
old versions of themselves. Like, I don't understand why this is such a stretch. But the thing for is, you. that was being set up. The thing that, that this QB, is being the fact set that, up too. no, it's not. It's Madoka it. literally transcending to a plane of existence higher than any human being. Okay. That's the only way she can save all the magical girls, which is, is the it, wish that is she it made. Is it the only way that she could do it? Or is it a way that she can do it that was written into the story, right? Which everything that she's seen over the past 11 episodes has convinced her to carefully think about the wish and make a wish that will save everyone. And these are the consequences of that. It makes perfect sense it does not it makes perfect sense <laughs> all right let's move on to rebellion before uh, we we turn this into a three hour long that's argument. the most animated we've ever gotten on the podcast in disagreement i think <laughs> even sao didn't do this to us as we agree on sao <laughs> it's hot <laughs> uh All right, I don't want to spend... I want to spend some time on Rebellion because I think it's a fucking amazing movie that inspires a lot of conversation. Why are you looking at me like I'm that? I'm just looking at the level of A pluses that we oh, have Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll talk right about now. that. So, I, but I don't want to recap the entire plot. I want to just, like, talk about the main sort of concepts slash things that happen in, in Rebellion. So, again, I sort of couch this in a big twist, which is Homura's quote-unquote turn on Madoka at the end of the movie. We will get to that, and I'm sure we'll disagree about it. I want to set up the movie. So, the movie begins again, kind of like the show did by throwing you into complete confusion. Homura is a transfer student again. You have Madoka, Sayaka, Mami, Kyoko all present. Mami has a familiar named Bebe, which really resembles the witch she died to in the show. And they fight against these beings called nightmares rather than witches. And you are basically relating to Homura where you feel like something is wrong. And Homura vocalizes this as the fact that something is amiss in their memories and they're trapped in a fake version of Mitakihara, which must be a witch's labyrinth itself. I don't know about you, man, but everything was right to me. This was a straight up fanfic. It did kind of start out like a fanfic. It did. And you're like, wait, what the fuck is happening? What is this little baby thing that looks like a fuck the fucking decapitating witch? Yeah. And then like Kyoko and Sakura Saika are best friends. Yeah. And you're just like, yeah, All right, you're this, like this is happened? tight. I like yeah. this. Homura starts to remember much of what happened in, in the original show. And QB reveals that a pocket dimension was formed out of Homura's despair. And it was populated with people from Homura's original life. Homura was falling prey to the, the law of cycles. And then QB uh, took that moment to isolate her soul gem from the rest of the world. And so her soul gem is turning into a witch. However, what's happening is they made it directional so that people and ideas can still come into it. And QB's overall goal is to identify what this nebulous concept of the law of cycles actually is. So Madoka, being the savior that she's now transcended into, would, for any magical girl transforming into a witch, would come in and cleanse their soul gem and release that person from essentially their mortal coil, right? So that person would then disappear. Kiwi's uh, intentions are to control Madoka and... This eventually leads into Homura turning into a witch, which I think is hilariously named Homolily. That's like some fucking Pokemon shit. That's so funny. <laughs> I was dying. And so Homura's witch directs her familiars to kill all the incubators in the labyrinth to protect Madoka. She basically just goes insane. Sayaka and Nagisa. Nagisa is this magical girl who had taken the form of Bebe. I don't really know why she's in this. Well, it's because Bebe is also in that transcendent plane, right? So, like, her, oh, yeah, Saika, okay, fair. and Madoka are like the Yeah, okay, the I forgot about that. Yeah. Correct, correct. The Holy Trinity, as we would say. Yeah, true. So they're both revealed to be guardians of the god version of Madoka. 
and help save Homura from herself, ultimately freeing her soul gem and destroying the remaining incubators. And then Madoka arrives to cleanse Homura, bring her into this higher plane uh, as she's reconnected to her sort of universal powers. Before we get to the first twist, right? Um, well, not the, the first last twist, twist, but the, the like major the twist, twist, the major twist, baby. I, I mentioned that we would talk about the witches and, and how they relate to the actual magical girls or the, their previous iterations. So now everyone knows that magical girls do transform into witches, or they used to, prior to Madoka ascending into this other plane of existence, which I can't say with a straight face. <laughs> so when we saw Bebe, who had first had, had killed Mommy, that character was the sweet switch, so she loved sweets. And you can see that this girl was a really young girl, like much younger than any of the other girls that we've seen here. So Nagisa is this child, and you understand, okay, this, this, this girl had loved sweets, and therefore she was transformed into the sweet switch. Uh, she loved cheese, too, for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about the cheese. <laughs> <laughs> the entire... They're like feeding Bebe cheese. I'm like, what yeah, the moment where she transforms and just goes, Parmigiano! Yeah. I was losing my mind. <laughs> I was losing my mind. All right. <laughs> and so when, when Saika transforms into a witch, you see all of the imagery is around music because of yeah. the love that she had had for Kiyosuke. For this dickhead from Aremo. <laughs> yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> um, and when Homura transforms into a witch, you see her being led along in this way. So first of all, she has like half of her head missing, shows this internal conflict. Um, you have her being led along in this chain towards this guillotine. And it's because her goal is to eventually kill herself so that she can protect the identity of Maruka. And all of the imagery surrounding her, and a lot of the imagery actually in the show is around, like, dancing. Um, we yep. have this transformation sequence where all of the girls are dancing for, the like, straight up three minutes. The scene in the fucking movie is the transformation <laughs> sequence. It's such yeah. a good Madoka-esque riff on the typical magical girl transformation. It's so fucking good. This is one of the things I wrote A++++++++ stuff about. <laughs> There's literally, like, 10, 10 pluses on the show notes. Yeah, right yeah, yeah. And then the second thing I wrote a ton of A's and a ton of pluses about is the Mommy versus Homura fight. That is unironically one of my favorite anime fights of all time it's so yeah. fucking sick because you have all the shaft animation the shimbo style with this magical girl running around mommy pulls out a fucking gun because that's like her magical girl power it's it's so fucking well choreographed and just like amazing that's just like that's top tier stuff well now that you're ranting aside <laughs> um <laughs> so we we have i i will say the the two-step conversion one from a regular human to a magical girl and the second conversion from a magical girl to a witch they have very tight connections between them yeah mommy for example have you thought about why she has the the binds in addition to the guns it, it's just interesting to speculate on how she gained that power from her wish to r remain a human or stay alive for me you know it may be because she wanted to continue to be bound to humanity she wants to be bound to being alive and that's why she got this ability to have these ropes that allow her to for example hold on to homero's leg and allow her to continue to experience time in that fight in a way that no one else can no, I think this show is really, really great for speculation. And I mean, I know we've talked about the the wish system at length and how that also breeds a lot of speculation. And, you know, it might it might not work for you. But I think you can't argue that the show makes you think about 
every little detail if you really want to understand it on on a deeper level. Yeah, I mean to 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 clarify, the, my my issues with the with the wish system are primarily for one reason, and that it's unbounded. I liked every other aspect of it that it had these consequences that related to your wish. Um, I liked the way that they had some very dark underlying goals for the incubators to actually allow for these wishes to happen. Yeah, I just I just wish it were bounded. I think that could have been easily done, and and that because it wasn't easily done, results in things like Madoka becoming god, and essentially here Homura destroying Madoka into two different pieces and becoming the devil. This was some straight shit to me. <laughs> okay, let's talk about let's talk about the ending. So, what happens when Madoka? comes to purify Homura at the end of the movie. Homura grabs Madoka and traps her, severing Madoka's humanity from her divinity. She reveals that what corrupted her was actually a curse of love and makes Madoka and her friends forget what has happened such that they live their lives like they did at the start of the series. And so she gloats to Kyuubi that this new reality will force the incubators to bear the weight of the collective curses of the world. And she even accepts that she might become Madoka's enemy if Madoka ever regains her powers and her memories. And that's how the movie fucking ends, which now you can understand why people have been like, where the fuck is the sequel to Rebellion for many, many years now? And it's because Rebellion ended like this. So I have two main questions. One is, do Homura's actions, and the, specifically the action at the end, does that fit her character that has been built up and two did homura do the right thing hashtag homura did nothing wrong no homura's character's actions do not match i think what her character was and yes homura did nothing wrong <laughs> okay so <laughs> i completely disagree on point one and so, so let's let's turn it apart so all right, all right. He, basically you texted me that this made no sense and my response to that is this do it live baby <laughs> We'll do it live. Okay, so why do I think Homura's actions make sense with her character? You can read Homura. Your magical girl stand, baby. I mean, yeah, sure, but also because it makes sense. So you could read Homura's actions throughout the entire show, and her turn at the end is coming out of nowhere, and her throughout the show having a healthy relationship with herself and with Madoka, and being a genuinely good person who just wanted to help her friend and this seemingly coming out of nowhere. Or you can have the interpretation that her love for Madoka was obsessive and unhealthy as it of course would be if you went through countless time loops trying to save one person over and over and over again and watching them die, which is what she does. So it makes sense that she's completely unstable mentally. And she also thinks that she's doing the right thing because she thinks that by taking this action, she can return Madoka, at least the human version of Madoka, to be living her life normally with her friends the way in which Madoka wanted to early on in the original series. Madoka transcending into a, a godlike form was her really sacrificing that wish to spend time with her family and spend time with her friends in order to save all magical girls from the fate of being witches, which she deemed more important. And so Homura has a, this obsessive love for Madoka, which is definitely insane and unhealthy as it should be by everything you've seen in the show and in the movie until now. And also she thinks she's doing the right thing. You can, you can say that you think it's a negative thing and that it's, it's not correct. And she didn't do the right thing, but she thinks she's just ripping 
Madoka into two and letting one version of herself just live a carefree, happy life. Okay, so to the first point Come at me, where Daddy. you're saying, <laughs> to the first point where you're saying that she has emotional trauma or mental trauma, I think that's 100% true. I think that she very clearly has emotional trauma from going through the timeline so often. And it's even explicitly stated by, I don't, I forget who states it, maybe, maybe QB. It's even explicitly stated that if she gives up hope for even a second, she's going to turn into a witch because hope is the only thing driving her now. Her only goal is to make sure that Monica survives. Now, her entire premise for the first season, the, 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 the original show, is to keep Monica alive, right? And that doesn't mean, though, that after Monica already sacrifices herself and tells Homura, no, I did this for myself, I am happy, and I'm rewriting the world to be better for magical girls, and... And when you die, when when you become uh, essentially when you would have become a witch, you get to transcend to this higher plane with me and live with me. So she sacrificed herself, has said that she's happy and has rewritten the world for the better. However, Homura then decides for some unrealistic reason to me that she wants to become a potential enemy of Madoka and that for Homura, it's more important that she has Madoka around in human form than having Madoka actually be happy. Well, there's even this really interesting line that the god version of Madoka has when she realizes what Homer is going to do is she basically is like, no, you're about to rip me apart. And in that moment, you can read, okay, like Madoka doesn't actually want this to happen when she realizes what is going on. However, that's the god version of Madoka. And also in, in Homura's sort of twisted reality, which, you know, her perception of things is clearly very warped after all of these time loops, she still believes that Madoka just living her her normal life as a human is what the past original version of Madoka that she met would want. So I'm not saying this is true or correct. I'm just saying that in her view, in her twisted reality, living with the god version of Madoka in this higher plane of existence is not what the human version of Madoka would have wanted. And that's why she does this. The issue is, I've, I've made it a, a point a number of times to say that I really think the character development in the show was on point. I really did like it. This is one of those segments where we get such a hard 180 in the character's actions that I can't say that it was good writing. Because Homura, up until this point, is doing everything purely to try and save Monica. Her wish is even compared to Saika's, is completely selfless. She wants to save Monica no matter what happens. She's even in the process of potentially dying to Walpurgis not. So everything she's done up until this point is selfless until she suddenly decides, nah, fuck all of my previous iterations. What I want to do now is do this for myself out of some type of Pride. But that's what I'm saying. I don't, know I don't think she views it as doing it purely for herself. I think she thinks that this is what the original version of Madoka would have wanted is to live this carefree life. That in and of itself, that idea is something where either she's too blinded to see that what she's doing is for herself or she believes it is and knows it is. In either case, though, that means to me that her character is completely different from the character that we've been building up to. 
I well, I mean, you know, I disagree. I already laid out all the arguments why. I <laughs> mostly just wanted to say that you said Walpurgisnacht without the Germanic flair. And oh, sorry, I, yeah, like, do you want to do you want to <laughs> redeem yourself before we finish the podcast? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the other thing, the other thing for me. So that's is, a no. <laughs> well, no, fuck that. Uh, the other thing for me is again we come to a head where we were talking about the wish system, and. We talked about unbounded powers, right? And, and that was my qualm with the wish system. How is Homura suddenly splitting apart the godlike and, and mortal parts of Madoka? Like, that is not shown to be possible at all. We have no idea how that's happening. And suddenly we're just like, yep, that happens. That I'm not going to argue with. I think thematically and character development-wise, I like the, the Homura twist. And I think, in her view, she did nothing wrong. But the actual <laughs> mechanics of like how that works in the world, how that works because of her magical girl powers, I don't really understand. Maybe someone can explain it. But yeah, I think that's fair. Well, we can we can uh, we can argue about this more offline. Great. So, cool. I mean, that being said, I I really did think Monaco is a fantastic show. Um, I think that the number of twists, the quality of the writing, aside from a few qualms, was actually stellar. The way that we get this deconstruction, the way that Urobuchi has essentially designed this entire show to come to a point where Madoka, as you said, transforms in the last scene, the way that all of the characters surrounding her build up to this dark transformation from humans to magical girls to witches, all of those concepts and those themes that we see, I think were done fantastically well. Well, I'm glad to hear you enjoyed it, despite... <laughs> arguments we got into on this podcast i mean i have already said it's one of my favorites we haven't we haven't done like our own personal three by threes or, or anything yet we might in the future but th this is an easy top 10 pick for me it's 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 one of my favorites and i think you can at least appreciate why it's a classic if you really get the full picture of what it did for the genre and you know why people have feel really passionately about about the franchise for uh so long so a few kind of outstanding questions. So one, there's a spin-off series, Magia Record now, which is based off a gacha game. It's like fine. <laughs> like it's it's the the first core of it already aired. It was fine. It's you know, it feels thematically in the same universe, but it's not at all related. So it's good for like generally more content. We'll see if the second core if the story picks up at all. I did want to ask you one question about the upcoming movie. So very, very exciting news that we did get a movie announcement and a uh, teaser photo for the sequel movie to Rebellion. So do you have any expectations for this? I think for me, I really don't, despite how much I like Madoka and how much I know about the series in the movie. I think the most exciting part and maybe scary part, because they could really fuck it up, is how many different ways they could go with the sequel. But it does, like I mentioned earlier, really feel like Rebellion needs a follow up. And everybody that worked on the original movie and the original series is back. It's not like some case where like Urobuchi, etc. Are, are not involved. So I'm excited for it, but I don't really know what to expect. I don't know if you have expectations. Yeah, I'm going to answer that actually with a question by asking you, did you think Rebellion was necessary? Yeah, so we mentioned this on a previous podcast, I think the one where Katrina was a guest and we talked a little bit about Madoka. Rebellion was not necessary. And Urobuchi has said in interviews that he did not envision Rebellion in the original planning of Madoka. So I think if you just watch the 12 episodes, it's, it's fully written as intended. I think Rebellion works and Urobuchi did a good job crafting a narrative that for me works given that he was asked to do more but it was not strictly necessary at all and 
I do think Rebellion, Rebellion definitely begs the question a little bit more about mm-hmm. what comes next. And I don't think the original show does that. I think that's fair. And that I mean, again, I, I don't think Rebellion was necessary either. I think the series could have left off as it was. Yep. For just because I like the series now, I'm happy to actually watch any sequel things. This sequel movie, I mean, I'm excited for it. I'm excited to see what's going to happen. Is it going to be a a direct sequel to Rebellion? Is it going to be an alternate universe? I I can't really tell. I think they're definitely going to answer some of the questions that were laid out in Rebellion, but I have like no idea in what format. The only thing I know is that you and I are going to be in the theater and we're going to be cosplaying. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Who are you taking? Uh, Fuck. I, I, I have my girl Homura. I got to stand. Homura did nothing wrong Damn, dude. in cosplay form, too. So I might actually do Kyoko. I like the red hair. What the fuck? I thought you were going to do want Sayaka. The lance, you, don't, you don't want, want the blue lance. hair? Okay. No, dude. I hate the blue-haired girls. You know I hate Rabbit, So <laughs> All right. Well, I, th- I, think, I think we're done. I think the Madoka Magica episode is, is over at this point. Anything else you want to say before we wrap up? No. That was good. I All liked right. it. Cool. Thanks for indulging me and in talking about one of my favorite shows. The Isekai episode was for Ravi. The Badoka episode is for me. And we're just going to keep going back and forth. But yeah. thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Please make sure to leave us a review. If you use Apple Podcasts, we're available anywhere you get your podcast. Typically, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, anywhere like that. So definitely subscribe to the podcast. Check out our website, bakabanter.com. Please interact with us on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter at bakabanterpod. We post fairly often. Ravi is upset that I keep posting Magical Girl content, but I swear it's not on purpose. It just happens to happens to come up when I'm looking through anime news. So oh, it just happens to. Yeah, it just happens to. I don't fucking know what our next episode is going to be. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, I have no idea what it is. Do you know what the it uncertainty. is? Certainty. Did we talk about uh, it? Yeah, I think the uh, KyoAni. Oh, fuck. You're right. Well, our next episode, <laughs> we're going to be talking about KyoAni. And uh, I think we're going to do it in top five format like we did for the Makoto Shinkai episode. So... We got a lot of care I need to watch in in the next two weeks till that episode drops. So if you're interested in that, stay tuned. Otherwise, we've been the Baka Mental Lads and we'll catch you all in the next one.